You do it better. That's good. Let me just like put my Bible right side up. Um, okay. Um, I bet some of us are still recovering from kickball. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The wins are dead. It was epic. Um, I did tear my pants. Um, I told you that, and she thought I tore it from the crotch. Um, but it was just a knee. Uh, here's a confession, uh, though, about kickball. I was sore and winded on Saturday. <laughs> yes, I'm that out of shape. Not Friday when we played, Saturday. I was still winded and sore. I have this disease called FPS, which is fat pastor syndrome. <laughs> And I'm, I'm hoping that kickball may be the cure. <laughs> All right, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm Sid Drew, and I'm the minister of this thing called RUF, Reform University Fellowship at New Mexico State University. RUF is a Christian campus ministry that exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, for the believer and the unbeliever, for the healthy weight watcher and the unhealthy calorie collector. <laughs> For the loudly independent and the quietly codependent. And RF exists for those of you who aren't quite sure you're in the right place right now. Where am I? And those of you who call RF home, or at least maybe just like a temporary shelter until, you, until home is found. Um, in other words, wherever you are, whoever you are, thanks for coming. Uh, welcome. Uh, we hope that you get to know RUF and RUF gets to know you. If you've been around RUF for a while, make an effort and introduce yourself to someone new, to you at least. Um, if you're new, uh, welcome again, and just take it easy, maybe meet a few new people, uh, maybe make a friend or two. All right, let's talk, sign up. Can someone start passing that boy that around right there? That boy, I don't know why it's a male. So, this is just a way, if you've already signed up, please don't sign up again. It's a way to get connected, to get information about where you are. Uh, we won't cyber-stalk you, I promise. Um, so, also join the Facebook group if you're interested in MMSU RUF. I really am going to try to keep my re-announcements short. Um, so, I'm just going to say summer conference. Uh, you need to get on it. I mean, beautiful. Get the postcard. It's online. You can just sign up. If you need to talk about scholarships, I know some of you have talked to me already about that. Come and talk to me tonight, and I'll be in National Lights as well after this. Uh, we're not going to let money be the issue that keeps you away from going to summer conference. If it's something else, that's fine, but it's not going to be money. So uh, we've raised a lot of money to help you guys out, so please come and talk to me. Um, it's 315, which seems like sticker shock, $315, but it's for 10 days, so... Um, with all expenses paid. So travel, food, the conference itself, room. Um, anyway, okay. Finally, International Lights afterwards. Uh, it's a great opportunity to hang out and get to know some folks. And you can turn this monologue going on right now into a dialogue. Right? <laughs> so uh, I, if, you have, if you have questions and answers, we're, I'm more happy to recreate Q&A Corner. Um, so there might be some after this little sermon or talk. But if you need directions or a ride, talk to me or any of the musicians up here or someone who looks like they're experienced in international delight. So I'm not, I mean, take that how you want. Okay, so um, 
Oh, last thing that I thought I'd mention is that, I guess I said finally, last thing, isn't that what I'm supposed to do up here, is just continue to tease you that I'm almost done. Um, there, we're recording these, so if you want to listen to them, they're on the nmsu.ruf.org website. If you don't want to listen to them, that's fine. In fact, I don't listen to them because it really freaks me out uh, to hear my own voice. Uh, again, I think it's much sexier than it actually is. Uh, so, that being said, there's also, I did a youth conference where I was dead sick. So, if you want to hear me cough up phlegm for at least half of one of them, there, I, did some, I redid my relationships, one from last spring. So, if you want to take a look at that, you can too. That's up there. Thanks to our Jen turn. <laughs> Jennifer Lachlan in the house. Okay. So, uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're looking at the book of Colossians in the Bible. This is Paul's letter to a church in Colossae, which is a modern-day Turkey. And my best attempt at a title for our study of this book is, What if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really needed and wanted anyway. So, what if enough was actually enough? How Jesus is all we ever really needed and wanted anyway. Our passage tonight is going to again really hammer that point home, and so I'm really not going to spend a lot of time talking about what's behind the title. Um, I'm just going to let chapter 2, verses 11 through 17 do the talking. So, with that in mind, um, if you're not there, you can turn there in your Bibles or in your, or in your bulletin. Um, and as you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of where we've been. Paul's writing this letter to remind those people in modern-day Turkey uh, about 2,000 years ago. He wrote the letter. And he's saying, look, uh, this is what the gospel is, the central message of Christianity. It's about who Jesus is and what he's done for real, who he really is and what he's really done, as opposed to some of the false people coming around and telling you different stuff. Uh, and then the letter starts out with some introductions in chapter 1, who Paul is, what his ministry is about, and then what the gospel, the good news, is really about. And so we've started in verse 6 of chapter 2, like something that I told you is like my one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 23. Um, and I'm taking it slowly. We're doing a piece at a time. We'll do one more next week, and then we'll be through my favorite passage. Um, it's, I think it's not, if it's not the most, it's certainly a most clarifying, brilliant, and beautiful passage in all of the Bible and maybe in the world. So, um, and I think really a lot of the power of this passage comes from its ability to offend us. It wounds us in order to heal us. So, prepare to be offended. As I said last week, we're going to continue that steam train of offense. Um, so, I'm preparing, you prepare, all of us prepare as we take it in the chin from Paul. Okay? <laughs> Um, so we're delving into the meat of Paul's argument that starts in verse 6. We're looking at uh, verse 11 through 17, but I'm going to read verse 6 onward. Not because I'm going to rehash everything I said last week, but because I just want to give you some context. So would you stand for the reading of the Bible? Uh, if you're having trouble finding it in the Bible, uh, New Testament, second half of it, between Philippians and First Thessalonians. Okay, I'm reading out the English Standard Version translation. Colossians chapter 2. Start at verse 6. Again, that might not be your bulletin, so just, you can just listen if you don't have it. Uh, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Jesus again, all also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the power, through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, that is Jesus. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Friends, these are the words of God. They're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey from the honeycomb. You pray for me. Father, uh, we're thankful for this time to get together uh, and look at your word. I pray that you would make this very clear. Um, I pray that you would help us to understand what you're trying to say. Uh, you're saying so much in such a small space that it's kind of overwhelming. I pray that you would help us to stand... Um, in that, uh, under that amount of beautiful, wonderful truth, and I pray that you'd help us to absorb some of it tonight, that you'd help us to take a few things away uh, about who you are and what you've done. I pray that that will change who we are and what we do. And I pray, Father, that your spirit would work uh, along with this passage and knead it into our hearts. I pray, Father, that uh, you would use this time to help us to understand what the heck is going on uh, with ourselves, with our world, and ultimately what's already happened in your son, Jesus. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Be seated. So a few years ago, a New York journalist named A.J. Jacobs wrote... Uh, who actually decided in his own life to follow every rule in the Bible as literally as possible. Yeah. This meant he tried to obey the famous and beloved biblical laws like the Ten Commandments, you know, loving God, loving neighbor, and then the more infamous and ignored biblical laws like don't wear clothes with mixed fibers. Okay? Or don't, you know, I don't know if you follow this one, but I always think of the one about boiling the young Catholic. Young Catholic's mother's milk. Anyway, I don't get that one. But um, honestly, okay. So maybe I have to preach on it so I can get it. Um, Jacobs recorded this year-long experiment in this uh, by trying to live on every single law that's in the Bible. Um, in a really funny book, actually, and it's called "The Year of Living Biblically." <laughs> this book has like a dear diary approach. Do you know what I mean by that? Like day sixty-four. Uh, it talks about. That's how trying to live, he describes how he tried to live that, that new while that day, and then he kind of reflects on how that felt, how the whole process went, that sort of thing. Um, let me give you an example 
day 64, Jacobs takes on, A.J. Jacobs takes on one of the most difficult laws of the Old Testament. That is the, the first half of the Bible. And this law is stoning people. Okay, so this is a sample, okay? So he's not, this isn't the practice of, of getting people who cheat on God and cheat on their spouses uh, high on marijuana. That's not what he's talking about, about stoning people. <laughs> he actually thinks about doing that. But um, rather it's the way that ancient Israel executed people who broke important laws. So clearly, like all of us, Jacob has some real problems throwing large rocks at people. Um, so he decides to use pebbles instead because he finds a loophole that it doesn't specify the size of rock you have to throw at people. Uh, let me just, it's pretty funny. Um, it gets better. So his first attempt to stone somebody um, was that he found a Sabbath breaker. This, uh, somebody who was a pot-bellied guy at the Avis... Uh, car rental place down the block who he saw him work both Saturday and Sunday so he figured this is the guy I've got a stone but the stoning looks like this it looks like he couldn't really bring himself to throw the pebble at the guy so he walked by him and pretended to drop the stone the pebble on the shoe um, and he called it the most polite stoning in history <laughs> Apologized to the Avis worker afterwards when the Sabbath breaker picked up his pebble and gave it back to him. So, it's all true. Uh, so, Jacob's second attempt, he's like, that's not satisfying. It didn't work out well. So, his second attempt to stone somebody involves this crotchety retiree in Central Park. Remember, Jacob's lives in Manhattan. So, the old man claims to be an adulterer. Okay, Jacobs, you've got to remember, is he's living the, the, a year of living biblically, so he's got a huge beard that he never shaves, and he's wearing, like, Moses robes. So the guy goes, what are you doing? And he's like, well, actually, I'm here to stone somebody, like an adulterer. And the old man says, hey, I'm an adulterer. He's like, really? He's like, yeah, yesterday, today, tomorrow, probably. Yeah, I'm committing adultery. Come stone me. Come on. And so, but the 70-year-old-plus man, he's, like, in his 70s, warns Jacobs that he won't take the stoning lightly. He says this, I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you to the cemetery. That's why you're going to lie to I'll send you to the cemetery. Uh, so that's the guy taught warning Jacobs. And so there's this altercation where the grumpy old man tries to steal some of Jacob's pebbles. And he actually throws one at, at Jacob's. And so Jacob, then Jacob's gets kind of mad, and he throws a pebble and hits the old man in the chest. And the angry old man yells, I'll punch you in the kisser. Another great line. True story. And again, remember Jacob's in full costume. He's got the beard, he's got the Moses robes. Even he bought this like $25 crooked staff on eBay. And he said, Jacob's and all that stuff, so he yells back at him, well, you shouldn't commit adultery. <laughs> in the middle of the park. So they have this ten-second, really awkward stare-up where Jacobs is thinking, this guy might be able to take pure rage. And the guy eventually just like rushes by uh, Jacobs and leaves. So that's what happened, and then he has this sort of dear dire reflection. Uh, as he reflects on his day of trying to throw people, and his attempts to reinforce that biblical law or to enforce that biblical law, Jacobs writes this. Stoning is about as indefensible as you can get. It, goes, it comes back to the old question. 
How can the Bible be so wise in some places and so barbaric in others? And why should we put any faith in a book that includes such brutality? Again, how can the Bible be so wise in some places and so barbaric in others? And why should we put any faith in a book that includes such brutality? That's Jacob's is raising a really good question there okay, that we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. That I bet most of you have actually thought of it one time. If you've ever read the Old Testament, uh, most of us have that vow at the end of the year to read the Bible in a year, and we get to Leviticus, and, and we stop because we start reading incredibly hard rules like that. There's these harsh rules like stoning, or silly ones like not wearing mixed fibers. What's the deal with those? Are those on equal footing with like uh, the laws about loving God and other people? Stoning doesn't seem very loving, even if it's just with pebbles. That doesn't seem that didn't really work out very well for Jacob to be loving. And finally, why should we put any faith in a book that includes such brutality, like stoning somebody? All these rules, many feeling very mean, others feeling very irrelevant. All these rules make the Bible seem like some outdated antique corset or girdle that makes it hard to breathe and only goes while the hoop skirt, which is equally unwearable. <laughs> I don't really know. I just did a Victorian metaphor there. Uh, maybe I just got inspired by Jane Austen. Who knows? Um, anyway, here's what I mean. Uh, this is the question. Isn't the Bible just a bunch of rules? Rules and laws to restrain the young who still have a lot of life in them. And then rules and laws to give comfort to the old who are just about to die anyway and can't really live life. And these, behind these cultural thoughts about Christianity, we get the ultimate frustration. Rules and laws are judgmental. They're judgmental. They judge us if we fail to do them, and they make us judging of other people if we do succeed and actually do um, do the laws or the, or the or the rules. So, well, like most criticisms, uh, there's some truth to what's being said, but there's also a lot of misunderstanding. And we're going to unpack that a little bit. In our passage tonight, God through Paul addresses some thoughtful criticisms head on. Now, this isn't a debate. This isn't like uh, AJ Jacobs and some of the doubters on one side, and Paul and a couple other folks on the other. This is a helpful and encouraging lesson on the true nature of Christianity. That's what we're getting in this passage. Contrary to popular belief inside of and outside of Christianity, the message of the Bible does not do this and therefore be acceptable to God. The message of the Bible is God did everything for you so that you can be acceptable. You just have to believe in what Jesus has already done and follow him. Certainly following Jesus involves doing certain things. But these do not include things like stoning people or wearing solid cotton or solid polyester without blending. Just look at verses 16 and 17 of our passage. We're going to talk a lot about that in a a few minutes. In fact, following Jesus doesn't involve many of the biblical, quote-unquote, things that we think following Jesus involves. And that's why this passage is wounding us in order to heal us. So, of course... Doing or not doing things does not define who you are. Jesus defines who you are. Again, I'm going to quote this. I quoted this earlier in the semester, but it bears repeating. I'm going to quote the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, which is a children's Bible, and not from Silo Jones. It's not about keeping rules. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. Because it's not about trying, it's about trusting. It's not about rules, it's about grace. Grace, that is God's free gift that cost him everything. 
I quoted this before, but it's so important to remember how Christianity actually works. Otherwise, we're going to live <laughs> under judgment, or we live to judge other people. And that's really what our passage is about. And this is what Paul is reminding us for the first time, maybe for some of you, or the thousandth time for others of you. Remember, you are united to Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection are yours by faith. So don't let anyone judge you by rules that Christ has already taken care of. Okay? So remember, you're united by, to Christ by faith, so don't let anyone judge you by rules that Christ has already taken care of. Alright, so our passage tonight includes Paul's explanation of the good life and how to live the good life well. Let's look first at verses 11 through 15. We see there a description of what it means to be spiritually united to Jesus Christ. What it means for us to be in Him and for Him to be in us. Second, the passage finishes with an application of how our union with Christ changes the very way we live, especially in light of the cultural, biblical confusion that we live in. So in other words, verses 11 through 15 tell us about our spiritual union with Jesus, and verses 16 through 17 tell us how to live out of the spiritual union. Okay? Let's look first at what Christ has done for us and to us by uniting with those who believe. We're going to start with verse 11 here. Verses 11 through 15, they take up Paul's argument that he started in chapter 2, verse 6. Again, this is one big passage I'm taking three weeks to cover, because uh, there's just so much in there. And here's the basic argument of Paul that's going on from verses 6 through 23. And I'm going to use the words of Tim Chester as a writer. Tim Chester says this, We become Christians by faith in Jesus. We stay Christians by faith in Jesus. We grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. Let me say it again. We become Christians by faith in Jesus. We stay Christians by faith in Jesus. We grow as Christians by faith in Jesus. This is what Paul has previously said. This is what he's going to say tonight. This is what he's going to say for the rest of the letter to the Colossians. It's that simple and it's that hard. Jesus gives us everything we need to live well, to have the life that we want and need in all of its abundant fullness. That's the promise that God that's going out that's, that Jesus is holding out, that God's holding out this passage. But how do we know? How do we know that's for real? How can like Jesus' promise give us that kind of life? This is exactly the question that verses eleven through fifteen are talking about. They're answering that question. Verses eleven through fifteen tell us by faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we get filled with the whole fullness of deity. By faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we get the fullness of deity inside of us. That's what he's saying. And this means that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are yours. And all of their pressure-washing their pressure washing power towards our badness and our failures, and their burden-lifting, forward-facing freedom to live a joyful life. Right, that's a lot of stuff there, and we're going to unpack that as we go forward. How does this all work, though, is the question. And this is what verses 11 through 12 are talking about. How does this all work? Verses 11 and 12 tell us that when God in all of his fullness took on a bodily form, we see that in verse 10, when that happened, when he took on the bodily form of Jesus of Nazareth, right? when God in all of his fullness became a man, these verses tell us what Jesus did. 
what he accomplished in his time on earth as a man. Okay. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life. He made no moral mistakes. He loved God and everyone around him completely and all of the time. That means he didn't sin. That Jesus died on the cross, what verse 11 calls the circumcision of Christ. That's Jesus dying on the cross. And then Jesus rose again. He was resurrected from the dead. Again, verse 12 speaks of that. Um, of course, after his death, where he was buried in a tomb for three days, which is what is symbolized in baptism in verse 12 again. Okay. But before you shrug and say, so what? Before you do that, which maybe you already have, maybe I missed that time in the, in the talk. Maybe you shrugged a long time ago. Uh, verses 11 through 15 tell us Jesus' life and death and resurrection were done for us and to us. So this isn't just something that happened out there in the world. And you're like, good job, Jesus. Golf clap. That's awesome. Way to, way, way to, get, way to get under par. Um, this is actually something that's for us and to us. Um, what is his, that is Jesus' is ours for all of us who believe it's true. Look at the word, listen to the words of Tom Wright. What is true of him becomes true of us. What's true of him becomes true of us. What happens to the head, Jesus, happens to the body, the church, those people who believe in Jesus. In other words, whatever Jesus gets, we get. Whatever Jesus gets, we get. This is what it means to be united to Christ, really and spiritually to share in the life, death, and resurrection. And really, this is what's beautiful about this chapter, that it keeps going. Verses 11 through 15 are not content to sit there and say, that's great, Jesus did all that stuff. It's, it really pounds the point of why that all happened. It gives us the so what of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Here's what we get, here's what we get to share in. Jesus died so that we die to all the harmful thoughts, feelings, and actions. That's in verses 11 and 13. Look, Jesus is inside of us, if you believe, killing that part of our heart that hates people who cross us. Killing that part of our heart that runs away from those people trying to help us, including Jesus. Jesus rose again, so we were raised to compassionate thoughts, compassionate, <laughs> compassionate behaviors and feelings. In verses 12 and 13, we see this. We were dead. We were dead in our self-centered, have-it-my-way jealousies. We were dead. But in Jesus, we were lifted above this darkness and made alive again so that we can fully see other people and fully see God as they truly are. According to verse 15, Jesus made it so we no longer have to stay addicted to the shameful hobbies that get us through our days. We don't have to love body parts instead of love whole people. We don't have to fixate on food and schedules and success instead of Jesus. But perhaps the most powerful so what occurs in verses 13 and 14. I'm just going to read them for you because it's so powerful. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. Here's what that means. 
Jesus has taken all the tickets that you ever will get, that you ever have get, gotten, that you are getting right now, and he's ripping them up into a thousand pieces and he's throwing them behind him. Actually, more accurately, he's taking all the ways that we fail, that we mess up, that we hurt and disappoint people, including ourselves, and he takes all that bad stuff we ever did, ever thought, ever can think, ever can do, and he nailed it, not now, not in the future, 2,000 years ago, to a cross, into the hands and the feet of Jesus. Our debt, our moral IOU to God and to everybody else that we screw over, has been paid. Paid. If you believe this, if you believe in Jesus, your baggage has been taken from you, and that you can no longer claim it as yours anymore. But look, I understand it's somewhat hard to grasp, right? You kind of go, how do the mechanics of that work, Sid? I don't get 2,000 years ago, something happened that, that takes away not just past them, but present, center, and future. Sid, I don't get it. I don't get how this whole thing works. How can being united with Christ eliminate and fully absorb our debts. How's that possible? Well, let me tell you a story. Isn't that what we always do when we have confusing things to say? <laughs> um, like, I knew two people in college. There was a girl named Ashley and a guy named Barrett. Okay? Uh, Barrett was a saver. He saved his money. And he had a few scholarships. He did a lot of hard work in the summers and on his breaks. And he had some family help and inheritances. And he managed to graduate from college, not just debt-free, but with a fair amount of savings account. Ashley, on the other hand, was not very good with money. She did not save well. She didn't come from a lot of money from home. So she graduated with a lot of debt. She owed a bank tens of thousands of dollars, because it was a private college and it was expensive. But guess what? Guess what happened? Ashley and Barry fell in love, and they got married. Okay. They joined bank accounts. And do you know what happened to all of Ashley's debt? It was absorbed. It was eliminated. It was paid off by Barrett's savings. Do you get the point of the story? Believing in Jesus is being married to Jesus Christ. There's a reason that we call marriage a union. Because it reflects our union with Christ. And our relationship with Jesus may fluctuate emotionally. Some days we're head over heels in love with Jesus. He's the best thing ever. And other days we really don't feel all that into him or that close to him. But as long as we choose to live our lives with Jesus, that is continuing in the faith, Colossians 1.23. We're united to him. We're married to him. And just like Ashley got all of Barrett's financial benefits, we get all of Jesus' benefits. A spiritual righteousness beyond counting. And just like Barrett got all of Ashley's financial liabilities, all of her debt, Jesus took on all of our liabilities, the damning debt of our sins. That's how it works. We're married to Christ. faith. And the incredible spiritual richness that Jesus is pouring into those who believe, even now, right now, in this room, in this moment, this vision never leaves Paul's sight as he approaches verses 16 and 17. The point of verses 16 through 17 is that all of these things, 
questions of food and drink, festivals, new moon celebrations, Jewish Sabbaths, all of these things are exactly like circumcision. Jesus didn't just take care of them. He finished them forever. You see, verse 11 of our passage argues you don't need to get male private parts altered, circumcised by human hands. I'm going to say it. Nip the tip, okay? <laughs> Chop the top. Because, because we don't have to have that happen, because our hearts have been circumcised by Jesus already. We don't need that future because we've had internal change. And all of the biblical rules work the same way for ancient Israel, okay? All the rules that are listed here. The biblical rules no longer apply to the Colossians to us because they were matched and then exceeded by Jesus Christ on the cross and his death and his life and his resurrection. Let me just give you a few examples briefly because I could get into Old Testament trivia and that's not my name of my game today, okay? The Passover festival slays a lamb whose blood over your doorpost allows God's righteous anger to pass over you and your family. Those people covered by the blood of the Lamb. Now, if Jesus is the final Passover Lamb, according to John the Baptist, he was slain to take away the sins of the whole world, or all the world, okay? Not just a few people, not just one nation, and not just once a year, like the Passover festival. So why would you keep celebrating the fast Passover festival if that's already happened once and for all? Okay, here's another example. Um, there's, I mean, I guess I could just do lots of them. And really, it just goes into all of these different possibilities. Jesus is what makes all of the ceremonies, like they're honoring new moons, or Sabbath rests, or clean food rules. They're all pointing to Jesus. Do you get that? Just like the Passover lamb pointed to Jesus. They're all pointing to Jesus. They're pointing to a Jesus that makes all things new. They're pointing to a Jesus whose rest is in and of himself, not on a day. Okay? Not on a Saturday, at least. Okay? A rest. Basically, Jesus says, look, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I am rest incarnate. Look no further. And this is what verse 17 is getting at when it says these ceremonies and these laws, laws like mixed fabrics and laws like stoning people, but not laws like the Ten Commandments. Okay? All the laws that are what we call ceremonial laws, but it's something that is like reenacting something that Christ will do on the cross, or something civil, like when Israel was a government, okay, and we lived in what's called a theocracy, a place run by God, okay, on a civil level, like God was the MDV, okay, that's different now. It's not what's going on, hopefully. If you've seen God on MDV, let me know. Um, but anyway, all these laws, okay, civil and ceremonial is what they're called, they're just Jesus' shadow. That's what verse 17 is getting at, okay? They're just Jesus' shadow. The laws like mixed fabric and stoning people are just Jesus' shadow. I want you to picture this, okay? You're sitting outside at Frederick Food Court, and you're sitting in a corner, okay? And like most days in Cruces, it's incredibly sunny, and perhaps hot, unseasonably hot, perhaps, like today, yesterday, okay? And let's just say I'm meeting you, and your view is blocked by that corner seat when I approach, right? You'll probably see my shadow lean, lean over the corner before you'll see me, right? Is that fair? Do you guys follow that? But here's what you're not going to do, I hope. 
you're not going to greet and look at and talk to my shadow when I actually arrive. Okay? I hope. Maybe that's how you that's how you roll. That's okay. Okay? Here's what's going on. Historically, laws like stoning were given to people before Jesus showed up on the scene. Israel was an historical corner and only saw Jesus approach in shadow. A shadow that pointed to God becoming man. A God-man's life, death, and resurrection. Not then, but at a later time in history, around 0 AD, or sorry, 33 AD. You see, the shadow told ancient Israel that Jesus was coming to rescue them. To rescue them from death by his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus would get stoned to death for their and our crimes. Or actually the Roman equivalent, which was crucifixion. So they, the Israelites who believed, and we who believed, wouldn't die. Do you get that? So basically, do we serve this dim outline of the law? Okay, that is the shadow. Jesus in shadow form. Jesus in rules that make up an outline of who Jesus is, but not his substance and not his body. Do we serve those things? Or do we serve Jesus who has turned a historical corner and has come in his body, his flesh, and his substance for everyone to see and everyone to serve? Okay? Just like if we were in a one-on-one and you talk to my shadow, please, in your Christian faith, don't talk to the shadow of Jesus. Talk to Jesus in substance. So Paul's clear answer is no, we don't need to shadow box with Jesus in rule form. We can't just be rescued by rules, even weird old biblical rules. And here's the deal. Keeping these kind of rules doesn't guarantee that you'll have a good, safe life. And breaking these good, or these, these biblical rules doesn't guarantee that you're going to have a fun, meaningful life. That's the case. And here's why. We can't be rescued by rules. If the Bible's primary purpose, its primary business, was telling us exactly what to do and exactly how to do it, it would be really, really bigger. be much thicker. So you guys, when you read the Old Testament, maybe if you're familiar with it, if you're not, it's okay, you might think there are a hundred rules in there, but there are less than 700. Did you know that? Okay. And here's the deal. There are more rules for driving the state of New Mexico, my guess, definitely in other states I've been into, that there are more rules at the, at the MDB than there are in the Old Testament. So is that supposed to be comprehensive? And, and no, it feels like a lot, but it's not enough to live. Okay? And second of all, if the Bible was just a rule book, we wouldn't need Jesus. Do you get that? If that was what the Bible was all about, if it was just an instruction manual for how to live, we wouldn't need Jesus. We would just follow the instruction manual. And we would judge everyone who doesn't follow it and those people who can't follow it as inferior because they're not following the rules. Obviously, you're putting in their swing set totally wrong. You should just follow the instructions. Okay? So we set up life, so to speak. Okay? Um, more realistically, we failed if we would, we just would, we, if this was just a rule book, and even the rules it has that we should, we should keep, we fail to follow. And then we live under the condemnation, the cloud, that feeling, that being, fear of being judged. So we're either going to judge other people or we're going to be judged if we try to live by the rules. And that's why the Bible is not a rule book. 
is a story of Jesus' rescue. But in this passage, Paul is arguing for a better way. He's saying, look, let's not look at keeping rules or breaking rules. Let's dig by faith into the spiritual riches of Christ's finished work. What verses 11 through 15 are talking about. What he's done for us, once and for all, for all time. (laughs) His finished life, death, resurrection, and the benefits there. Later. Life by faith in his historic in Jesus' historical performance and not our own fighting against or performance of rules. However spiritual sounding those rules are, however biblical looking they are. So you're probably at this point saying, so okay, Sid, I'm not supposed to follow detailed laws, even those that seem like they fit pretty well in the first part of the Bible. How am I supposed to live? What do you do? You're taking away every tool I've got in the tool belt. You jerk. Okay? What does it look like to live out of our union with Christ? What does that even feel like or look like? The temptation, again, inside of me, I think it's just a cave. It gives you and me a bunch of rules. Okay? To-do lists or five steps to a better you, maybe loosely based in the Old Testament. Okay? I certainly can't just point to my life and say, live more like me. After all, did you see me play kickball? I slid into second. It was 22 to 9. I was winning. What am I doing? Okay. I've got problems. More problems than a math book. Okay. But then, thankfully, I was thinking about all this. It was really kind of bothering me quite a bit. And keep, this is this kind of stuff that keeps me up late at night. Okay. Um, and I was thinking about this, and then went to this funeral on Saturday. I heard testimonial after testimonial of a vivid flesh-and-blood life, a picture of what it looks like to live out of our union with Christ. Wow, it was so beautiful. Her name was Betty Miners, and she died of Alzheimer's complications. So I really can't claim that I knew her all that well at all. She was in the throes of memory loss when I first came to the church. All I can tell you personally is that she was not a sexy Christian. She seemed quite ordinary, if not a little boring. I'm pretty convinced this is what day in and day out faith actually looks like. So when I discovered Betty was an uncelebrated Christian celebrity, when I discovered that Betty was an unheroic seeming hero in an era of megachurch preachers who blog too much, that to me... When I saw person, when I heard person after person proclaim Jesus, uh, that Betty had Jesus' heart for people, and that they had seen Jesus when they met her, that made me just weep like a baby. I just couldn't stop crying. I couldn't. You know why? <laughs> I'm really not much for tears. I, I think the last time I really cried like that is, is probably eighth grade when I threw a bunch of interceptions in PE. Okay, so, <laughs> confessions, okay? I'm really not much for crying. And then I got so made fun of that I never cried again. But that's a long story, okay? I, I think I was, damn, just like, I'm just like so overwhelmed by the picture of who Betty was. What it meant to be married more than Betty. What it meant to be married to United to Christ. What that looks like in a person who's lived a long, full life. Let me just tell a few stories that illustrate this point. Just don't take my word for it. Listen to these stories and see if you don't smell and see and taste Jesus. 
Jesus living inside of someone. I mean, I want you to grasp what moving, what's so moving about living not just for Jesus, but out of Jesus. That's so amazing. I just, look, this is her life. Betty married a pastor, uh, God bless her, named Harry Miners, and they moved to rural New York. The small church that Harry pastored burned down a fire, and literally almost the next year, Harry got polio. And he got polio, that disease that has a vaccination. He got it six months before the vaccination went public. Ugh. And he nearly died. He was in the hospital for over a year. And Betty faithfully visited him with her five children in tow. For the rest of his life, of Harry's life, Betty would have to take care of five children and Harry, who would never walk on his own again. He lived in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And this wasn't when wheelchair accessible was in vogue. Okay? This was a long time ago, in the 50s. I just want you to think what that looks like. Think about trips to the bathroom. What goes on there? For Betty and for Harry. After Betty drove her entire family across the country to New Mexico from upstate New York, Betty began to work again with five little children as a school librarian. Most people would have packed it up and given up by then and certainly shook their fist at God and turned away from everything. I mean, come on. She married a pastor. She did everything right. She went to Bible camp. They went into an eight-year engagement. It was, like, amazing. But still her husband got polio. But Betty didn't do that. Or rather... Christ living and dying inside of Betty didn't do that. Betty got busy doing the unsexy but beautiful work of generosity and prayer. She saved her meager salary to pay for textbooks for all of her grandchildren, 20-something grandchildren, and to support world missions in places as far away as India. She saved her money to host lunches after church, to send birthday cards to almost everyone she ever met in her entire life. This means that she had hundreds of dates to remember and hundreds of cards to send a year. <laughs> Do you get that? That kind of commitment? And then there was her prayer life. Her children, child after child, got up in this memorial and said, I swear my mother had calluses on her knees. She didn't just believe in prayer, she actually prayed. Christ in her prayed. She prayed for and encouraged a co-worker who was a high school dropout and a single mom. And, and through her prayer and encouragement, that high school that co-worker got three degrees. And this is, this is perhaps the most powerful story of all. There was a man in my church who got up and told a story about Betty's prayers that still makes me want to rejoice and weep at the same time. And here's the story. This guy was, in his own words, young and foolish, and there was a Sunday evening church service, back when we used to do those things, and he and Betty would go to this, mostly like a prayer meeting, and there's this time in the service where there's open prayer requests where you stand up and you just ask everyone to pray for you. And this was sort of, as you can imagine, an awkward time, like most people don't really share things in this sort of moments. Oh yeah, pray for school, my family. Yeah, stuff's going on. Um, but this guy just was like, I'm tired of it. And he stood up and he said, I'm drinking too much again. And I don't know what to do. He fully expected that everyone in that room would treat him like he had some sort of disease. 
and give him a radius of at least 11 feet, never to get near him and his troubles ever again. But you know what happened? Betty approached him and said, you know, you've been in my heart. I didn't know what to pray for you, but now I do. And to this day, he credits her prayers and Jesus' grace with making him sober. Look, after hearing a Jesus-saturated life like that, and again, Betty, there's a thousand, hundred thousand Betty Miners in the world. Okay? For everyone who gets up here and is arrogant enough to speak to you all, there are a thousand people like you all praying and being generous. And here's my question. When you see and hear a Jesus-saturated life like that, do you still want to list? Do you still want to live by or live against rules in order to feel self-satisfied? Do I still want those things? Jesus Christ lived through Betty Myers. She was married to him even in her 41 years as a widow. And I can only pray that God lose my life like that. That it would be so ordinary and so boring and so powerfully full of Jesus Christ's love. I can only pray. And that's what Paul's talking about. That's what it means to be united in Christ. It looks boring, it looks ordinary, but it looks and smells and tastes like Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, <laughs> I don't even really know um, how to come across that hearing about someone's life like God, hearing about what you do and the, and the, and the things that you change us about. Uh, I mean, where on a list would birthday cards fit? I pray that you would help us to know who you are better. Uh, I don't know where we are, all of us in this room, and I just pray that you would help us to cling fast, to get married <laughs> to you. I pray, Father, that you would be kind and gracious to us, uh, that we would know uh, what it means to live out of and for you, you inside of us, and us inside of you. We ask these things. Amen.